Well, it seems like every time someone wants to, and you know this from your own lives, every time someone wants to get good at some sort of ability or become proficient in something, it always takes at least two things. It takes skill and it takes discipline. Now, I'm thinking of some some specific abilities, like to learn how to play an instrument or to... Uh, learn how to do well at a certain sport, or even the ability to be a soldier. But you can add probably anything else. In all of those areas, it always requires training or, or coaching or teaching. And training serves to equip you with the skills to get good at something. A trainer will equip you with the resources you need to become proficient. But becoming proficient also requires discipline. And discipline usually involves repetitiveness. You have to do it over and over and over again, almost so that it becomes second nature. Whether that means playing scales in in music, or in sports it might be hitting a golf ball, or taking a slap shot, or shooting a basketball over and over and over again. And military training is renowned both for providing training in a skill and teaching repetitive discipline. And it's like that in the Christian life as well. To grow as a Christian, we need those same things. We need to be equipped to live as a Christian, and thankfully, in order to do that, we have a God who provides everything that we need for the battle. He is the best trainer. But we also have to learn disciplines. In Ephesians 6, we'll, we'll see today that we have the resources that we need to be a strong army of Christians, but we also need the discipline, together with that, the discipline of consistent prayer in this case. So we're kind of now in this home stretch of Ephesians. We've been in this letter for a while, and we're kind of getting to the end. We're going to have a sermon today and then one more kind of to wrap it up. But that's where we find ourselves today. And Paul ends his letter by making these new Christians aware of why we still have a hard time living the Christian life. Even though we've been, Paul starts off this letter saying that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, there in chapter 1, verse 3, even though that's true, we are still in a battle. We're actually been brought into to that cosmic battle that still exists between God and the devil. And so he reminds us us of that. But he doesn't end this letter on a downer. He's letting us know all about this so that we know how to prepare ourselves and so that we know the resources that we've got for this wrestling match. That's what he calls it, their wrestling, that wrestling match against these forces of evil, against these things that threaten our effort to walk in a manner worthy of, a call, of our calling, as we learned in chapter 4, verse 1, or against these things that try to hinder us from walking wisely, as we learned in chapter 5. Now, these threats that face us are real, but God hasn't left us to wrestle on our own. He gives us everything that we need so that we can hold our ground. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this passage on the armor of God. This isn't something new to you. This is one of those stories that we study in Sunday school. In fact, I think 
I kind of came up with this this week, that this story is, is probably the story that inspired the invention of flannel graph. Who remembers flannel graph? Who remembers in Sunday school those little felt things that you, yeah, exactly, a lot of you do. None of the kids do, I know. But in this story, the Sunday school teacher would start with a normal-looking character and would, would start to add a piece of the armor as the story went on until this guy, this normal-looking guy, looked like a soldier. And that was supposed to represent a Christian. So when we learned this story, it represented you and me preparing for this battle. We were each told to put on the armor of God so that we can fend off the schemes of the devil. And certainly, that's a legitimate application and an important part of what Paul is teaching here that we ought to take out of it. But I want to stretch your thinking on this passage a bit to not only include individuals, but to include the collection of people, collectively a group of people that make up the church. I want us to think about how this passage applies to us, yes, as people, but expand that a little bit to include the whole church. Here's why I think that's an, a legitimate application, too. Whenever Paul uses the word you in this passage, you put on, or you do this, you do that, it's in the plural. It's in the second person plural. You could really translate this well if you were an American. It would sound something like this. Finally, you all, be strong in the Lord. Or verse 11, you all put on the armor of God. Verse 13, therefore, you all take up the armor of God. Verse 14, you all stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And on it goes. But when Paul is giving these instructions, I think that he's thinking of the church. He's thinking of the whole armor of God for the whole church of God. And I think that fits with the rest of Ephesians very well. One of Paul's main points we've learned as we've gone through this is that this letter is, the, the purpose of Paul's writing is that God has saved the people into the church. He's brought people together from all different backgrounds and united them into one body, into one church with Christ as the head. If you have your Bible open to Ephesians already, Ephesians 6, go back a little bit and just look at the last verses of each of the first three chapters. If you go back to chapter 1, you'll see this emphasis on the church right at the beginning there. Verse 22, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then you go to the end of chapter 2, and we'll see the same thing. You are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This dwelling place is the church that he's building us together into. And then at the end of chapter 3, you have that beautiful benediction, that beautiful blessing, with, which ends with, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. In chapter 4, he talks about how he gives certain people gifts so that they can equip the saints, the saints of the church, for the work of ministry. And then chapter 5 has that whole section there, in verse, starting in verse 18, that says, When believers are filled with God, the overflow will come out in the church as they sing songs to each other and to God. 
and as they submit to each other. And so Paul's emphasis throughout this letter is how we live our Christian lives in the context of the church. And so when he gets to the end and he talks about how we battle and how we wrestle and how we struggle, I think he's still thinking in terms of how we do that collectively as a church. Paul's point in this section is that a spiritually strong church is marked by two attributes. One, by, the, by its ability to stand, and secondly, by its commitment to pray. He brings this letter to an end, and his final request there is in verse 10. Finally, at the end of it all, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in, his, in the strength of his might. He doesn't want them to be a weak church. He wants them to be a strong church. And he wants that strength to be attained through their union with Christ. Be strong in the Lord. If you go through Ephesians, just mark down how many times it says, in Christ, in the Lord. The union, this union that we have with Christ is important. It's integral. It's everything. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The strength that he wants them to attain is not a strength that is in any way self-generated. They will be strong as they find their strength in the power that the Lord provides. We know that verse in Philippians 4, 13, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's through him that we find strength. This is good for us to think about on this day. Today, when we kick off our, our fall ministry season, we want this to be said of our church we want this to be said of all our ministries. Verse 10 would be a good theme for all our ministries and for our church as a whole. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We find our strength. We find our power as we serve and as we minister in the strength that God provides. And so how does Paul propose that we become a strong and, and healthy and, and vibrant church? Well, the first way is to be the first way to be a strong church in the Lord is that we, we uh, reinforce our ability to stand. We reinforce our ability to stand. Paul uses those exact words there in verse eleven: "Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand." He says that almost yeah four times here in those verses. If you go from verses eleven to fourteen, look at verse eleven: "Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand." against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, etc. You kind of get the point here. Paul's kind of wanting us to stand. And so what does he mean by, by telling these Christians to do that? What does it mean to stand? Well, to understand what he means here, it'll help to look at other places in the Bible that, that talk about this idea of standing. When you go back to the Old Testament, to stand basically means that God will give people everything they need in order to defeat the enemy. Go back to Exodus, all the way back to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. This is the account of the, the Red Sea that we know so well. Down in verse 13 of chapter 14, it says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. There it is. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work 
for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. What a great story of God's victory. They had the Egyptians coming behind them, and they saw the Egyptians and looked back, and they were scared. Yet God tells them to stand firm, and he will provide the victory. Go over to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You have the account of a king of Judah with the great name of Jehoshaphat. And he's about to take his people into battle against Moab and Ammon, two other countries, two other tribes, basically. But he knows he's in trouble because they're together. They form a big army. In fact, he says, cries out to God and says, we are powerless against this great horde. Great horde of people that were there. And he says, we're powerless here, Lord, help us. But then God's word comes through a prophet there in verse 17, where it says, you will not need to fight in this battle. And here's those words again. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. And it says later that God set an ambush so that it's actually a great ending to the story if you want to read it this afternoon, that Moab and Ammon ended up destroying each other. And so to stand here means that God will fight the battle for his people. Our part is to stand, to have faith that God will do it. So you hear that over and over again in the Old Testament with Joshua, with Gideon, with David, and go on and on. The enemy doesn't stand a chance against God's people. They can make a difficult yes, but ultimate victory, no. But you'll also notice in the Old Testament the flip side, that the condition for God's help was that they obey the Lord and that they walk in his ways. So in Judges 2, we see an illustration of what happens when the people don't walk in the way of the Lord. It says that Israel forsook the Lord there in Judges 2, and this is a story that happens over and over again in Judges, in a cycle, but they forsook the Lord and served Baal. And then the very next verse says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them in the hands of the enemies, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. The problem was that Israel wavered in their relationship with God. In fact, they forsook God many times. And so there were times when God gave them over to their enemies for a time. But basically, when God says, stand, it means that he's going to do something, usually something supernatural, to help them prevail in battle. But this idea of our standing with God starts to take on a little bit more of a spiritual emphasis instead of just a physical one, even in the Old Testament, but then it comes to full flower in the New Testament. Back in the Old, Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should you count, says, O Lord, should you count iniquity, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. So what that's saying is that if God should, looks only at our iniquities, we could not stand. We would have no standing with God. There would be no way. We're, we're all guilty before God's court of law. If our favor with God depended on keeping God's standard, and we all know that God's standard is perfect obedience, no one could stand before him. So how 
can we stand then? Well, the end of that verse says, but, another important contrast in the Bible, but there is forgiveness with you. And where is this forgiveness found? In Jesus Christ. Psalm 130 already looks ahead to the place where, we're made able to, where we are made able to stand before God, namely the cross. And then in Romans 5, 2, we have it there in black and white. It's no longer hidden anymore, no longer looking ahead to something. Now it's looking back. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand. I love the end of Jude, another one of those great benedictions that we often say at the end of services. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand. He is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is able to make you stand, to keep you from stumbling. It's only through him that we can do that. The only way we can stand before God, the only way we can be secure in knowing that God is for us is by repenting of our sins and by trusting Christ. It's through faith in Christ alone that we can stand. And now we are secure in the Lord, even in the face of this cosmic, not against flesh and blood battle with the evil one. I love that whole song we sang at the end there, In Christ Alone. In fact, to tell you the truth, I'm the one that requested that song. But the one line especially applies to Ephesians 6. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. No power of hell can ever pluck me from his hand because we're standing in the power of Christ. In Christ alone, you can stand secure. And then for the church, if you put it in the church perspective, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we can be comfortable as people and as a church knowing that we can stand in the battle if we are in Christ. Back in Ephesians 6, he's telling them to stand, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to hold their ground. And the reason he's telling them to hold their ground is that there's an enemy. There's an enemy that's trying to take away the effectiveness of the church. And so Paul encourages these Christians to hold their ground in the face of the enemy. He doesn't tell them to attack the enemy. This is not a seek and destroy mission. He just tells them to stand, to defend the position that they've already got. Now that doesn't mean we're totally passive in this battle. We have a part to play. And so he gives them and and us a strategy for how to do that. The first step there is that we need to know the enemy. We need to know the enemy. We need to know what we have to stand up against. And here the enemy is identified for us there in verse 11. Verse 11. Let me get back into Ephesians here. Chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? Of the devil. The enemy is there. It's identified. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against 
All those things that are, are mentioned there in verse 12. And that list, if you put it together, basically tells us that the devil and his army is very organized and very structured. The battle that is going on in the heavenly places, even though we can't see it, it's not flesh and blood, it's very real. And we can't take it lightly. This is a very real struggle and a cosmic battle with a very formidable and powerful enemy. And this enemy will use all sorts of methods to deceive us, whether it's deceit or whether it's accusation or whether it's intimidation, whether it's discouragement, whether it's doubt, you name it, he'll use it against us. And the old Garden of Eden temptation to doubt God's word is usually at the top of the list. Sinclair Ferguson says that the devil always focuses on destroying five things. The word of God and its reliability, the character of God and his generosity, the righteousness of God and his absolute dependability, the enjoyment of God and its abundant pleasures, and this last one, and the fellowship of the people of God and its harmony and unity. So in order to be able to stand firm in this struggle, we need to know our enemy. We need to know his devices. We need to know his schemes. But we also need to know our resources. And the resource that we have is the armor of God. This is where we need to take action. We're not just passive spectators in this struggle. We need to put on, verse 11, and to, and to take up the whole armor of God there in verse 13. This picture of wearing armor is probably Paul remembering the words of Isaiah where God is portrayed as a warrior. In Isaiah 11 verse 5 he says, Righteousness will be the belt about God's loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In chapter 50, 59 verse 16 and 17 of Isaiah, And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. So I think that's where Paul is getting these images that he comes up with here in Ephesians 6. This prophecy, that last one I was talking about, puts on righteousness like a breastplate, helmet of salvation on his head. That prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, who became our righteousness and salvation. And so, in effect, now Paul is saying, we are the armors of that bearer, or the bearers of the armor that Jesus bore before. Jesus already wore this armor. He won this battle with Satan during his temptations in the wilderness, and finally on the cross. And now we who are in Christ, who are now united with Christ, can wear that same armor and be sure of his protection, just as he protected his son. And so we're supposed to put on the armor of God. Our enemy lurks. It's all around us. We don't know where these invisible forces are. We don't know how many there are. We don't know what they're up to. But we're just supposed to put on the full armor of God. And then we can be confident, in fact, as 1 John 4, 4 says, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that the gates of hell will, will never prevail against Christ's church. But listen, while we can be confident, we can be very confident. This passage shows us that we can never get complacent. Confident, but not complacent. Complacency, I think, is something that the devil uses in our day, in this, in this day where we live in a prosperous, peaceful society. But the devil can use prosperity and peace 
to make us feel secure on our own. We don't need the armor of God. He can try to make us think that. And so this is a good reality check to remind us that we are in spiritual warfare. And if we don't put on the armor provided by God for our protection, we are in danger as people and as a church. And so we need to be aware and we need to have the belt of truth fastened, the breastplate of righteousness on, the shoes, which is the gospel of peace that gives us a, a secure foothold. We need to be equipped with the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and most importantly, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All of these will help the church stand when the devil attacks the people of God. I'm not going to explain all these pieces of armor today, but I love the picture of the shield in the context of the church. There were, there were two kinds of shields that, that the Roman soldiers wore or used in that day. One was a smaller one and, and one was a bigger one. This one that's pictured here is the bigger one, and it was probably four feet by about two and a half feet. So they were big size. And these shields were especially effective when a group of soldiers held them up side by side. And when they were held up together, it made one huge shield which would be able to, to snuff out the fiery darts that were being launched by the enemy. That's a great picture of how we, together, as a church, can resist the devil. When we, together, exercise our faith and trust in God, the devil cannot penetrate. We'll be able to stand together and resist the devil as one body. The other image that stands out in that list of the armor is the gospel. All that armor refers in some respect to the gospel, truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. As a church, if we keep the gospel at the forefront of our ministry, if we never lose sight of the gospel, we'll be able to stand firm. The danger, I think, in our day is that we can start to assume the gospel. By that I mean that we don't talk very much about the gospel very much anymore because we either assume everyone knows it or we think the gospel is just something we needed back then when we were saved. But now we've all moved on past that. We're just trying to, trying to make it on our way to heaven. We don't need to talk about the gospel anymore. But this is saying the opposite. We need to always be wearing the gospel because once we start assuming the gospel, we'll start compromising on what the gospel actually is. And before we know it, we'll have the same problem that, that ticked off Paul in Galatians where he says that you have been bewitched by Satan by another gospel. And so as a church, as ministries of the church, let's make sure that it's the true gospel. Let's make, always keep the gospel in front of our children, in front of our ladies, in front of our men, in front of our care groups, in front of our greeters, in front of our musicians that God created us in his image, that we have sinned. Yet in his love, God sent his son, the one who lived without sin and, and died and was raised on the third day, and that if we repent of our sins and we trust in Christ, we can be saved. That gospel is our armor in our battle with the devil and his forces. And so we need to always keep reminded, be reminded of it and keep proclaiming it. So a strong church is marked by its ability to stand, and a strong church also quickly is, is marked by its commitment to pray. Look at verses 18 to 20. Paul continues on, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If we want to be strong in the Lord as a church and in the strength of his might, we need to pray at all times. The church has to withstand the devil with the armor of God, but Paul also encourages the church to be a praying church. One of the clues that Paul has some strong thoughts about something is when he consistently repeats himself. Well, he does that here with the word all, praying at all times, with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul says that a commitment to pray must be one of the main activities of the church It's one of the things we ought to be doing the most at all times. This is why we as a church leadership decided to keep our midweek prayer meetings going throughout the year. At first we were just going to kind of do it for the summer in the absence of the care groups, but we've decided that this is so important that we're going to keep going with it. But I'm encouraged that all our ministries recognize the, the importance of prayer. Our Sunday school teachers have a time of prayer before they teach every Sunday. Did you know that? We have a prayer time before each service at 10.30 in the boardroom, which any, anybody can join. Our worship leaders pray before they get up here on Sunday mornings. Our care groups have a time of prayer during their meetings. We have a prayer chain, which you can also be part of. And so what I, I would encourage you to join with your church in prayer. Prayer communicates the fact that we are totally dependent on God dependent on God for any fruit that will come from our ministries. It's not our creativity, it's not our ingenuity that brings spiritual fruit. It's God's power that does that. We need to call down God's power. He says we're to pray in the Spirit. All that means is that we have an ally in our prayers. Our prayers are empowered by the Spirit. Romans 8 says the Spirit also helps us, helps us or helps our weakness. Remember, we're talking about strength here, a strong church. The Spirit helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so when we pray in the Spirit, he helps us when we're weak. He helps us when we don't know how to pray. How do we pray for a a sudden accident? That happened, that claimed the life of a, of a 20, 21-year-old. Well, the Spirit helps us when we're weak, when we don't know how to pray. And he helps us then to pray in line with God's will, Romans 8 says. And we're supposed to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That just connects with the section on armor. When we pray as a church, we need to stay awake. Hard time when we, one of the hardest things when we pray by ourselves, right, is that we drift off in our thoughts And even fall asleep sometimes, right? Ferguson says that Christ is building his church on territory that has been occupied by the enemy. And so alertness is essential when living in a war zone. And it talks there about the objects of our prayer as being all the saints. All the saints. Pray for all the saints. Make supplication for all the saints. Let's just be honest. We all struggle to live as Christians in this world. We all do. We all, and so we all need prayer. We are weak. And let's all admit that it's hard to constantly resist the allure of the world. It's hard to resist sin. And so we need the prayers of each other to stay strong in the faith. 
Even Paul asked prayer for himself there, that he might be able to do what God had called him to do, which is to proclaim the gospel. But this is how the church becomes strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, when it is praying at all times in the Spirit, keeping alert, praying for the saints. Listen, the devil wants nothing more than a weak, nothing less than a weak church. The devil does not want the gospel to advance. He knows he can't ultimately defeat the church, so he'll try to weaken it. And he'll try to do it at every level Paul has talked about in Ephesians. He says that there's supposed to be unity in the church, while the devil will try to bring division into the church. The goal of the church is to help people grow, he talks about in chapter 4, while the devil will try to convince people that they're fine. They don't need to grow in the knowledge of God. People are supposed to be patient with each other in the church. The devil will try to elicit impatience. When there should be forgiveness, the devil will try to plant seeds of unforgiveness and bitterness. Where there should be holiness and distinctiveness from God's people, the devil will try to bring the philosophies of the world into the church. The good news for us is that if we heed Paul's advice in this level, in this letter, the devil will not succeed. If we stand outfitted with God's armor, and if we pray at all times, the devil hasn't got a chance. And the outcome is that we'll be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So on this kickoff Sunday, I encourage you to stand together with your church, to stake your flag in the ground and say, I'm in. You can count on me to be a fellow soldier in the cause of the gospel here at Wetaswood Mission Church. If you're not a Christian, if you're not part of the church, you just need to know that God is the one who brings people into the church. And that happens only when we are in Christ, when we repent of our sins, when we trust in Christ, when he makes us alive with Christ. So you need to start there so that you have a standing with God through Christ. If you do profess to be a Christian, but have kind of been on the sidelines or you've been kind of been watching and waiting and, and trying to figure out how you fit in or where you fit in or even if you fit in, I encourage you as well to jump in with both feet. Get involved. If you feel weak and, and are kind of floundering in your faith, I encourage you to make a commitment to the church. There is strength in joining together with other believers. Join in. Now, I want to be right up front and say it's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be smooth sailing. But it will be worth it as we stand together and as we depend on God together in prayer. You will become a stronger Christian and we will become a stronger church with a stronger unity which will result in a stronger witness to our community. Let's pray. Our God, our prayer this morning is that is that you would make us strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. Lord, I pray that you would help us to resist the devil. I pray that you would help us to resist the one that controls the philosophies of the world, that is the prince and the power of the air. Lord, we thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, including the armor to stand against the schemes of the devil. We pray that you would empower your church today Help us to be a church that lives and breathes by the gospel. Help us to be a church that, that recognizes our utter and total dependence on you in prayer. For it's in the name of Christ alone that we stand.
and that we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.